Welcome everyone to Creating a Family, talk about infertility. Today we're going to be talking about things to think about before you begin treatment. But before we get started, I just want to acknowledge that I know people are worried and scared about the coronavirus and the impact it's going to have on their lives and their fertility treatment. Uh, I just want you to know that we have resources for you at creatingafamily.org. And we'd also recommend that you join our closed Facebook support group. We've been um, sharing both support and humor and all sorts of things over there. And, and we talk about our fears and, and what people are doing and, and, uh, and what they're doing to help calm their fears and things. So I really do uh, recommend that you check us out. And you can find that group at facebook.com slash groups slash creating a family, all one word. So as I mentioned, we're going to be talking today about things to do before you begin treatment. And we'll be talking with Nancy Harrington. She is an infertility nurse for over 20 years with a specialty certification in reproductive endocrinology and infertility nursing from the National Certification Corporation. She is a senior specialist of clinical education at Alliance Rx Walgreens Prime. And in this role, she creates and implements educational programs and training opportunities for patients and providers involved with infertility. She's also an active member of the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, where she received the Milestone Service Award in 2017. Congratulations, Nancy. She is also the past president of the New England Fertility Society. Nancy, you are well equipped to help us think through uh, things to, to consider before you begin treatment. And uh, a large portion of our audience is in that exact boat. So thank you for joining us today uh, to start at the beginning and, uh, and give people some of the basic information they need when they're first beginning this, this journey, let's call it, uh, although sometimes it feels more like a roller coaster, but uh, we'll use the metaphor of journey for today. Uh, let's start at the very beginning. One of the first questions we will often get is how long you should try before you go try to get pregnant on your own, uh, before you go to a doctor. Now, we've all heard the general advice, you know, the um, wait, uh, if you're under 35, wait 12 months uh, of trying with timed intercourse. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, and if you're over 35, six months. But let's, let's, let's parse that down a little more and get into the details. So what would you tell people? So how long should you try on your own before seeking a doctor? Sure. Well, thank you, Don. Uh, thanks for having me today. I'm looking forward to uh, talking with you today. Um, I, as you mentioned, you know, there is a standard definition. If you're under 35, try for 12 months with exposure to sperm. If you're over 35, six months, you know, but there's other things that also play in the role of when should I go to a doctor? I mean, we know our bodies. We know if we have a history of certain things that could affect fertility. So if someone has a certain medical history that could impair any kind of things to do with infertility, you know, one of the first things that women really need to think about is, am I getting my period every month? You know, you talk with women and sometimes they're like, well, yeah, I think my periods are regular. I get them every two to three months. Well, that's not normal. So even if you're under 35 years old, if you're not getting your period every month, 
there's a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not normal to not menstruate every month. You know, that right there is a, is a telltale flag that would say, I need to speak with my physician about this. And again, you know, as you mentioned, over 35, it's, you know, let's get there quickly. You know, what's happened too is managed care has kind of put a definition around when can I go to the doctor? You know, um, a lot of insurance companies won't let a patient even go in for a fertility evaluation till they're past a certain amount of months of trying. So I guess it's just kind of, you know, investigate for yourself what uh, your benefit model may be if you are covered by insurance. And then again, look at your physical and your medical state, you know, and how your menstruations have been over a period of a couple of years. You know, if there's any potential issues with the male, certainly you may not know that right away. But if there's any kind of pertinent medical history, that should somewhat push somebody along a little quicker to get uh, in and have some kind of an evaluation. And if you're seeing, uh, if you have a regular gynecologist, mentioning to her or him at your regular uh, checkup, uh, assuming assuming you're getting them, that you are thinking about trying to conceive, even if it's a year off, uh, that you're, and, and, and getting some general, just sharing information with uh, your med- your general medical provider at the beginning is also, uh, before you start, is also a, a good idea. All right. Sure. So, absolutely. So now we, the, you called it exposure to sperm, um, but we also will call it timed <laughs> intercourse or whatever euphemism for having. Sure. Um, but uh, so let's talk a bit about, because that, that when the, the general recommendation of trying X number of months, depending on, and I was really glad you mentioned, depending on your medical history, your, your menstruation history and things such as that, um, we're assuming that you are using, uh, that you're having sex during the fertile times when you could get pregnant. So let's talk, and we call it timed intercourse. So let's talk a bit mm-hmm. about the best time to get have sex if you want to get pregnant. Sure. Um, that again is kind of varied per person. Uh, again, a normal menstrual cycle per se, according to the textbooks, is somewhere between every 21 to 35 days in length. And so anything that falls outside of those parameters really needs to be investigated. So uh, again, you know, sit down with a piece of paper, kind of look at your past, you know, several months of menstruations and kind of try to mathematically talk about when is my fertile window. Well, in science, we define fertile window. It's usually 14 days prior to when you have your onset of menses or menstruation. So Say an average cycle is 28 days, which we all, you know, kind of learned about when we learned about menstruation cycles, you know, that would put you at day 14. But say your regular cycles are every 32 days or every 34 days. If you count back 14 days, that's almost always the time that someone would be ovulating. And so, you know, the fertile window is somewhat considered about six days, four to six days before ovulation occurs. So without using any kind of mechanical things such as an ovulation predictor kit or temperature charting or that type of thing, you can mathematically kind of take a look at it. Now, again, if you do have irregular periods, you really would be much better off talking with your primary care physician, talking with a gynecologist or a nurse practitioner, just to kind of get a better feel for, you know, when that potential fertile window could be. 
you know, and then, you know, women often ask, well, should I have intercourse every day? Should I have intercourse every other day? You know, according to ASRM, they will tell you, you can have intercourse every one to two days. So it still doesn't answer, you know, a specific question to say, oh, have sex every other day or have sex every day. You know, what it's basically saying is that if you can kind of plan around that window of time, uh, that you would probably, uh, both the sperm and the egg are at the, uh, you know, point where they would be most optimal for conception. And when you say day 14, what day do you start counting in your menstrual cycle? The first day that you have kind of a complete flow, you know, in the, um, fertility centers, when I was a nurse clinician there, you know, patients would say, oh, wait a minute. I started my period, you know, kind of last night at 11 o'clock. Well, we wouldn't really consider that day one, you know, so once you've had almost, you know, a full flow of a period, that's basically considered day one. Okay, gotcha. Now, you've mentioned uh, nowadays people immediately think in terms that they've got to have and not buy, start buying ovulation predictor kits. But as you point out, you can get a general feel just by uh, assuming you mm -hmm. have a regular period, uh, just by counting mm -hmm. days. So that's one thing to consider. But there are also some, in addition to ovulation predictor kits, which you can buy over the counter, but there are also some relatively low-tech methods that have been used for years and years and years before we had over-the-counter tests that are also amazingly effective. So let's talk, of, and these are uh, for helping you determine when you are ovulating. So let's, uh, let's talk some about some of those low-tech methods. Right. I mean, certainly, you know, there are basal temperature graphs out there on almost all internet sites to do with women's health uh, with really good instructions on monitoring your temperature when you wake up, you know, and explain to you when there is an increase in temperature, what that is in relevance to your ovulation. Certainly, you know, looking at cervical mucus or discharge that women most often find, you know, during ovulation changes, you know, they basically can kind of tell. Also, women sometimes will have some kind of a little bit of cramping on one side of the other uh, when they're ovulating. You know, they may think, oh, that kind of feels like something like might like cramps when one gets a period. So there are some medical things. And I think, as you pointed out, it's important to kind of start with the low tech, start with the know your body, know um, each month what's going on. Um, because I think that way, you know, you kind of have a more closer hold than a whole and a grasp on, you know, what each cycle is going to probably introduce as far as conception efforts. So let's say that a person has been trying for a while and, uh, and they have decided that they need to see a doctor. What type, and so we get this question a lot. I mean, most of us, most women have a, not all, but uh, uh, most of us have a gynecologist that we have seen, or some of us even see regularly. So should that be your first stop? Or if you haven't gotten pregnant quickly, should you pop over and, and, and make an appointment with an infertility clinic first? And can you even go to your primary, let's say you have a primary provider, but no gynecologist. What type of doctor do you need to see when you're beginning to think, okay, I, I need, I should be getting pregnant now. I'm not, I need to do something. 
Sure. Um, you know, certainly we would hope that most women, um, healthy women, are being followed regularly by an OBGYN or gynecologist for yearly pap smears, for those types of things, types of screening. It's never too early to start planning for a potential pregnancy. You know, there's lots of things that can be done uh, prior to conception that are helpful as far as the outcome of babies and mothers. And so, you know, certainly the first point of uh, maybe talking with someone would be an OBGYN appointment, but some women are also followed by, you know, fairly uh, highly level trained women's health uh, primary care physicians. And so, you know, it's just important to kind of decide where where is my best care going to be offered? You know, preconception visit is kind of a standard term that we use now in women's health. Um, in that, you know, that visit is to talk about all kinds of things related to health prior to pregnancy. So, you know, a preconception visit, the aim of that is to really reduce any kind of adverse health effects that may potentially contribute to both a pregnancy and a delivery. And so, you know, providers should be talking to patients about, you know, are your vaccinations up to date? You know, what types of medications are you taking? You know, also, you know, the CDC and ACOG, which is the American College of Gynecologists, recommends that all women that are trying to achieve a pregnancy, you know, be taking some type of a supplement of folic acid. Mm -hmm. You know, folic acid has been shown to really have an impact on the reduction of any kind of neural tube defects, mm -hmm. which, you know, these are things that, you know, we kind of take for granted, but there are so many different sites out there. You know, CDC has some excellent information, American College of Gynecology, American Society for Reproductive Medicine. You know, even if you go in and Google preconception care, there's a wealth of information about it, you know, and so it is important. You know, you can definitely start with a gynecologist or a, like I said, a primary care physician that is um, focused on women's health, you know, because again, they're going to talk about things that you could be doing, avoiding alcohol, avoiding tobacco products, you know, recreational drug use, you know, checking to make sure there's no real toxic environmental things going on. And so, you know, talking about screening for viruses and things like that. So again, um, there's, it's never too early to start thinking about it and to start talking to your practitioner. Okay. So when do you know it's time to see an infertility specialist, a reproductive endocrinologist? Well, it's, you know, I think a lot of that is based on um, treatment history. You know, if you have gone through some technologies such as, you know, artificial insemination or intrauterine insemination, you know, at the level of the gynecologist, depending on age, depending on medical history, you know, it's, there are certainly broad age ranges of women that seek help from a reproductive endocrinologist, which, um, you know, is a doctor that has a specialty training in reproductive endocrinology. You know, these physicians go on and do a three-year specialty, which uh, training course, which basically, you know, provides them with additional information above and beyond the OBGYN level to take care of women. And so, Again, I think, you know, there's some women that will go sooner than later. Again, getting back to some managed care, um, you know, types of things, managed care sometimes, um, you know, won't cover a visit with a reproductive endocrinologist until a certain amount of trying has mm -hmm. taken place. But what I would really recommend patients to do is when you talk with your gynecologist, 
Talk about who they work with kind of out in the clinical setting. Most OBGYNs in, you know, bigger parts of the metropolitan United States have some type of a referral patent. You know, they're sending patients to infertility doctors a lot of the times in their geographical area, in their hospital area. They're familiar with them. And that, you know, will give you the opportunity to maybe contact that practice find out, you know, about coverage, find out about costs. Um, and that sometimes alleviates a lot of fear about going to an infertility doctor. Mm -hmm. You know, I think a lot of the times patients feel like, well, if I go to an infertility doctor, I have infertility. You know, I mean, and I think that that's, again, something that it's always, you know, op this opportunity is there to move on to a specialist. Just if you're with, a, mm -hmm. you know, an, an OBGYN and you had a dermatology problem, you may mm -hmm. see a dermatologist. Or if you had a ear, nose, and throat problem, you would go to see an ear, nose, and throat physician. I think we need to think of the reproductive endocrinologist as a conduit just like that. Someone exactly. that, you know, it's time, it's, it's time for me to get an opinion and to get a plan in place and not to really put it off, that type of thing. I'm glad you said that, get an opinion. It's interesting, but I often find that people are willing to consider the idea of going to a specialist to get a second opinion. And I think you're right. I think there's a hesitancy to go because if I go, it means I'm infertile. That's, we hear that from people. And even, even people who know that that is perhaps not logical, it's still an emotional response. And that's real too. I mean, you know, the emotional responses are important. And, uh, and the other thing is that we hear from people is that if I go to an infertility clinic, I'm automatically going to be doing IVF. And uh, neither of those are true. So I do think it's important to think in terms of if, if you're having trouble giving yourself permission or thinking about it, think in terms of just going for a second opinion and, and see what you hear. And, and maybe you don't need to be there. So it would be helpful to, to, to consider that as an option. Um, are there some tests, though, that, or treatments that can be done by your gynecologist? Uh, or do or, or all type of testing, should you be at an infertility clinic to get the test? Uh, no, I mean, there's certainly definitely tests that can be done by a gynecologist. You know, um, they can certainly look at a woman's hormone profile. And so certainly, you know, one of the major things that you need in order to conceive is a nice, healthy egg. And so, you know, a lot of the times gynecologists will order um, hormone profiles to be done on female patients. And then that way they can look at estrogen levels and progesterone and those types of things and start there. You know, if there's an obvious problem that certainly, you know, requires advanced treatment, then they would, you know, think about referring that patient out. You know, most OBGYN offices have access to having a semen analysis done, you know, at a, at a laboratory that is somewhat close and distance to the patient. And so those types of things also, a lot of the times, you know, an x-ray of the pelvic area, which is a hysterosalpingogram or an HSG, you know, may be done at the level of the gynecologist just to kind of look at, is there a sperm? Is there an egg? And is there a transportation system, which would be the pelvis, where these two uh, can meet? And so those are kind of basic things that can be done uh, just to do an initial assessment. Again, based on a patient's history, uh, based on her age or his, you know, that type of thing, it, it may be advantageous to do it at the level of a gynecologist, but 
also uh, may be, uh, you know, advantageous for referral. And again, reproductive endocrinologists work closely with gynecologists. And so, you know, when you do, uh, if you do seek out the care of a reproductive endocrinologist or fertility specialist, you know, they will look at your records and they will, you know, determine what has been done and what needs to be done moving forward. I'm glad you mentioned uh, a semen analysis because that is something that can be uh, a test that can be uh, ordered by through your gynecologist. And it is, it's really one of the first tests that should be run. Uh, if for no other reason, it's less expensive and less invasive than most of the other type of testing. But, and, and I'm saying this, I realize that not necessarily you, but we do caution people to not stay at your gynecologist too long and not have too many tests run through your, uh, through your gynecologist. Because what we hear, is that oftentimes reproductive endocrinologists are going to have to or want to run some of the tests again. Uh, they may uh, have different ways of interpreting or, or different labs that they use. And, uh, and, and time is not on your side. So we don't want to see people spend too much, once they realize they've got a fertility issue or a potential fertility issue, and they've had their semen analysis done, and so they have a feel for whether it's female uh, issue or male issue or both, then don't spend too much time at your uh, gynecologist. At this point, if I, what I say is, if let's say if you have a heart problem, at some point pretty soon right. you want to go to a cardiologist because that's a person with all the training for helping you your heart get well or for treating you so that you can live a full life with the heart problem. And so the same is true with uh, infertility. Uh, the sooner you get to a specialist who has spent all those years training, the sooner you are going to be able to hopefully get pregnant. Uh, so anyway, I, I just we see people stay way too long um, on at, at a gynecologist. So I'm just saying, uh, consider sooner right. rather than later. <laughs> right, exactly. And I think too, you know, you have to be a self-advocate, you know, a lot of yes. the times, you know, you may be told, oh, well, let's try, you know, three more months or let's yes. try six more months. And, yes. and I think, you know, it's like, like you just said the thing about the cardiology comparison, you know, know your body, know what you, you, you want to get out of your visit with the physicians and then make some decisions based on that. You know, mm -hmm. again, uh, sooner is better than later. And, yes. you know, also a lot of the times, you know, with ovulation problems, you know, which is one of the most common forms of infertility for women, young women, you know, and even older women, you know, you, from a health perspective, need to be menstruating every, you know, every month, you know, so even putting off, you know, not having normal periods, that's also a health issue. So, you know, get into a, a situation where that's corrected, you know, even from a health perspective, so that your hormone levels are adequate, you know, that you're menstruating, that your bone health is good, all of those things, you know, also are accompanying when some type of an ovulation problem is corrected. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of twofold. Yes, you're trying to get pregnant, but also, yes, you're trying to be healthy. You're trying to make sure that from a women's perspective, you're healthy. And like I said, every month you're doing what should be done from a female's perspective. Yeah, that's a that's such a good point. So what are some other reasons that you know, I mentioned too, uh, and that is the fear of fear of being diagnosed with infertility and, and, and also fear that your only option is IVF. And, and I should probably throw out the other one, which is honestly cost. I mean, I think that's tied in oftentimes with the fear of IVF. 
but but let's 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 address some of the fears. Uh, what would you tell to say to someone who is saying, "Oh, I, I just don't, you know, I just do not want to get involved. I don't want to get on that roller coaster." I heard somebody say that to me last week when we were talking, actually in the uh, Facebook support group, and she was like, "I just do not want to get on that infertility roller coaster." So, what would you say, I mean, to somebody who is just hesitant to make that first appointment? Uh, as you mentioned, you know, a lot of the times it's fear. It's fear of the diagnosis. And I guess it's try to conquer that fear a little bit by kind of thinking a little bit more positive about what the outcomes might be. You know, when you see a fertility specialist, these physicians, these nurses, they open up a whole other avenue in your treatment uh, pr protocol per se. So, you know, once you go into a, an infertility specialist office, you know, you're seeing physicians, you're seeing nurses, you're most often seeing a person that specializes in benefit and cost. You're seeing support personnel from either a licensed social worker or a psychologist. And so you're kind of walking into a whole new arena of care. And so, you know, I think if you go into it with that, I'm going to go to a place that's going to meet all of my needs. And so, you know, the doctor is going to work up to see why we aren't getting pregnant, but the nurses, you know, are specialty trained in why I'm depressed or why I might be overwhelmed or why I might be fearful, you know, and the social workers are trained to talk about, you know, why you're feeling isolated from family and friends. And so, I think if you go into it more with more resources are available when you go into a reproductive endocrinologist or fertility specialist environment, then say per se, you know, walking out of your gynecologist's office and them saying, there's nothing else we can do for you. You know, I think sometimes the, the, the experience can be quite positive for some patients. I think they're surprised when they get to a fertility specialist office and realize there's a lot of other people there maybe in the same boat you know and again one of the key things i'm from massachusetts and so we have a mandate that is pretty comprehensive but one of the things too is patients are afraid of cost yep. you know p paying thousands and thousands of dollars and i think one of the key people that are in fertility specialist offices and i've been all over the country in my positions is there's almost always someone that is a specialist and an expert related to what things are going to cost, what your insurance will coverage, what co-pays you will have. You know, physicians have implemented this in the last 10 years to be as important as a nursing position in an office. You know, um, yeah. these are folks that are hired and that's all they do is to try to be an advocate for the patient, you know, to call the insurance company 10 times instead of two times <laughs> to make sure, you know, they're getting an answer. And, you know, that to me is a huge resource uh, for patients that I think are trying to get pregnant. And um, a lot of the times, you know, you will have um, folks that don't know about that. You know, they think they're kind of going from one doctor to another. And I do think, like I said, there's a fertility specialist office has varied um, folks that definitely are specialty trained, you know, to take care of, like you said, that fear, that, you know, feeling of being on the roller coaster. 
And again, patient advocacy, you know, what, what do you want to discuss as far as your treatment plan, you know, and, and have a plan, you know, basically have a little bit of knowledge about, well, okay, well, if I did do in IUIs or inseminations, like how many would you anticipate? And it's difficult because I know I'm a nurse and I kind of have these questions in my brain, but in other medical scenarios, I think we always have to kind of go in with lots of questions and, you know, and lots of answers that we take back and kind of formulate a plan. And I encourage people, if you are concerned about the, the financial aspect, share that with your clinic. Uh, mm -hmm. that's important information for them to know. It might influence how they approach treatment. Um, but there also may be options they can tell you about that can help lower the costs, things that you may want to consider. Mm -hmm. So all of those are things that, uh, and, and, you know, I, I agree with you that the financial people I often think are some of the most important people at an infertility clinic, because mm -hmm. what we find is that it, they help reduce some of the anxiety and anxiety is mm -hmm. just not good for our general health and not good for our fertility either. So for all those reasons, we recommend, uh, getting to a clinic and, and sharing your fears and what your hangups are and your concerns. And, and you may be pleasantly surprised all the way around. Right. And I think, too, you mentioned about the fertility benefits person. I mean, I know that there are some providers also that even if you're thinking about making an appointment with a fertility specialist, a lot of providers will offer you a phone call or to talk with someone in their office before you come, you know, so that you're not sitting there understanding that, you know, this was several hundreds of dollars that I wasn't aware of, you know. And again, you know, can't emphasize how important it is to speak to your managed care or insurance provider's benefits person even before you go, you know, so that you get an idea of what would be covered, what wouldn't be covered, you know, because another thing to understand is when you see a fertility specialist, you know, maybe your first visit, it's pretty involved because, you know, you're talking a lot about, you know, health and medical things. But also, you don't move rapidly. I mean, they don't say, okay, tomorrow you're going to do this. You know, most <laughs> fertility providers have, a, have a, a, a time frame and even will tell their staff, you know, we're not rushing into this treatment tomorrow because we have to make sure that we have adequately explored all payment options for this patient, whether mm -hmm. it be, you know, prior authorizations, whether it be she's eligible for some kind of a fertility assistance program. And so, again, you know, I think to know that the folks on the specialty side in fertility practices know that, you know, there are steps that have to be taken before all of a sudden, you know, you find out that you're, you know, undergoing some advanced technology without any kind of prior, you know, investigation. Yeah. And, and let's be honest, understanding insurance is, it's a specialty in and of itself and one that I do not have. And I, it intimidates me. And so I really, mm -hmm. for any type of treatment that would cost any amount of money, I really need to have somebody holding my hand. And it's hard to find mm -hmm. outside. And yeah, you can call up your, uh, your insurance company yourself. But it's also helpful to talk to somebody who's not at your insurance company who works with lots of, 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 of healthcare plans, who can help advise you. Right. And so yeah, I just I right. agree. Let me remind everyone that this show, as well as all the resources we provide at Creating a Family, and keep in mind that this show is only one of the many resources we provide, but we have an entire uh, A to Z resource section for infertility. All of that, everything that we do, 
is provided to you uh, for free because of our partners. And these are organizations that believe in our mission of providing unbiased, medically accurate information to the patient community. One such partner is Walgreens and Alliance RX Walgreens Prime. They provide specialized fertility pharmacy services through an experienced care team, which is available 24-7, and they are devoted to helping patients achieve successful outcomes. They understand the importance of timing and the need for personalized treatment, and they are committed to compassionate care and support throughout your journey to have a family, and we are so appreciative of their support. All right, so now we've, we've um, kind of harped here a bit on the uh, need to get to a clinic, but how do you find a clinic? Now, you've mentioned one way uh, already, in which is to talk with your gynecologist, because often your gynecologist can refer someone. And, uh, and I will throw out another way, and that is to find out uh, who your friends have used. And because the truth mm -hmm. is, you're going to be surprised when you start becoming more open, and you may choose not to. But if you become and start letting people know that you're struggling to get pregnant, you're going to be very surprised at the number of people in your friend set who have also experienced this. So finding out, getting referrals from your friends. But uh, Nancy, let's talk about some other ways that people can find uh, an infertility clinic. Sure. Um, I, I really like what you just mentioned about kind of speaking with friends and family and again, being not being surprised at how many folks have gone through some type of an evaluation or treatment. Um, but when you get down to kind of some specifics about how to find a fertility program, um, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, or as we refer to it, ASRM, they have a website um, called reproductivefacts.org. Mm -hmm. This is a website that you can go in. It's patient-oriented uh, website. You can search by state. You can search by zip code. But it's going to give you a list of, um, you know, fertility providers that are in your state or in your region. Um, also, as Don mentioned, you know, Creating a Family has an unbelievable uh, resourceful website, which offers an entire professional services directory for all kinds of fertility um, specialists. You know, Resolve, which is the National Fertility mm -hmm. Association, also provides multiple resources mm -hmm. on seeking specialists. And again, um, it's just a matter of finding out where they are. And one thing that I've found as I've traveled to the United States is that sometimes patients think, well, that fertility specialist is 70 miles from me. I mean, in Massachusetts, we don't have that problem. Yeah. We have 11 or 12 or 13 programs, all within maybe a 10 or 12 mile radius. But there's certain parts of the country that it's important that you know that, you know, even though the fertility specialist may be far away from where you live, you know, it may involve you going, you know, for your first kind of evaluation or appointment. But a lot of fertility specialists, they work with satellite operations. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, distance sometimes is something that they're um, helping patients with. And so, you know, although your first visit may require a bit of a trip, you know, type of a thing, usually monitoring and ultrasounds and those types of things can a lot of the times be set up with some type of a satellite system, some larger than others throughout the country. But again, you know, these doctors and nurses understand that, you know, it is a struggle in some geographical areas. But again, 
I think, um, you know, talking with folks that have gone through treatment, um, I get so many phone calls from my kids, colleagues and, and relationships asking, oh, your mother works in fertility. Does she know Dr. Such and such? Or, mm-hmm. you know, does she recommend this one? And so again, um, it's just, you know, perusing and looking and um, kind of just like you said, Don, which is, I think is an excellent point you know, having the ability to talk maybe with a friend or a close colleague or something that has gone through it. And, you know, we all know uh, word of mouth is probably one of the best referrals you can get, um, you know, as far as practitioners go, because a lot of the times, even if you go through a difficult procedure, if you were treated well and you were cared for well by a doctor or a nurse, you go away with a much more, you know, positive feeling about that. So. And more and uh, more comfort going in. Yeah, sure. Um, another resource I'll throw out is the Society for Assisted Reproductive Technology. In some ways, the list is is redundant to uh, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, but uh, the Society for Assisted Reproductive Technology. The ac- every, we have acronyms for everything in this field, and that sure. name is SART. Uh, they have. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, good information on their site for evaluating clinics and under and they, they uh, maintained uh, site uh, clinic success statistics and they provide resources on helping to understand those statistics and I should mention that at creating a family we also have resources available uh, on our A to Z resource uh, page to help you understand both how to choose a clinic what's important uh, and the second one is to understand the the statistics. So we have uh, resources there as well, including an, an e-guide on choosing a infertility clinic. So just throw that out there uh, as, as, another, uh, as another option as well. One of the things that uh, I know people get sick of it, but I do say it a fair amount. I always say to people, time is not on your side. And even, and I say this to people, even if they're in their early 30s, which we now mm-hmm. think of as, oh, you know, I've got time. And I think, no, you really don't. Time is not on your side when it comes to fertility. What, and I'm sure you say that and hear that a lot. Why do we say, uh, why do we professionals say uh, uh, time is not on your side? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that I learned early on as a nurse uh, was that fertility peaks in women in their mid-20s. And so, you know, in my generation growing up, women considered having babies in their 20s. Now, if folks have babies in their 20s, you're like, well, why did she have a baby so soon? Um, You know, definitely, you know, uh, women's childbirth years have definitely almost skipped 10 years. You know, know. women are thinking about having babies in their early 30s and, and, you know, up to 35. Um, But uh, egg quality diminishes, you know, eggs age. Uh, And so the most important factor in conception, you know, are sperm and eggs. Unfortunately, well, I said fortunately, sperm really doesn't seem to have much, you know, detrimental things happen to it till maybe after age 50. But, you know, with women, again, eggs are beginning to age. And so if women wait until, you know, their mid-30s to try to achieve a pregnancy, they are considered already advanced maternal age, mm-hmm. you know, at the age of 35. And so, again, it's really based on egg quality. Um, it's based on the fact that, um, you know, eggs when you're in your late 30s aren't going to be the same as when you're in your late 20s. And so, 
you know, fortunately, unfortunately, women are not ready a lot of the times to have babies yeah. when their fertility peaks. That's and unfortunate, so, but true. Again, yeah, it is. It's true. And, um, you know, and so I think, you know, it's important early on, uh, like we talked about earlier with preconception, you know, looking at someone's hormone levels, looking at how well their ovaries are working. And that can be done with simple hormonal testing. You know, you can take a look at the female hormones that are being produced every month. And by looking at the ratio of those hormone levels, you can somewhat get a good prediction on how the ovaries working. And so the other thing too that I've, I've counseled patients is that, you know, a lot of folks have a family plan that may involve more than one child. And so, yes. you know, when folks begin to try to achieve pregnancy later on in their 30s, you know, a lot of the times, you know, after maybe a first baby, they're met with what is called secondary infertility, where, you know, they're not able to have another child based most of the time on their age and their egg quality. So, again, um, it doesn't seem quite fair that, you know, fertility peaks at 23, 25 years old. But um, unfortunately, that's biology. And there really, you know, isn't anything we can do um, to really, you know, stop that aging process. You know, it's such an interesting point, and you're absolutely right, that we really have pushed uh, conception by a decade, and, uh, mm-hmm. and it's, it's absolutely true. Uh, 20 years ago, well, I don't know, about 20, yeah, 20 years ago, I think, well, certainly 30 years ago, but 20 years ago, too, I think people were uh, really, if you waited till you were 30 to start your family, you were considered older. Uh, mm-hmm. And now, mm-hmm. if you have a child before 30, you're considered starting a little early. Right. So it's just right. an interesting yeah. time shift. And it's, and for, and for a lot of good reasons, it has happened, you know, because our, the, our economics of our society and, and opportunities, just so many things have changed. All right. So important. Sure. Yeah, it's very important to, uh, for, for us to remember that uh, when we're talking and also for people not to feel uh, bad about their decisions, because they're often really good reasons why people have made the decisions that they have mm-hmm. made. Let me share with you another one of our partners uh, who is, who through their support, we are able to provide you this show and this, uh, this interview. Uh, and that is Cryos International Sperm and Egg Bank. They are dedicated to providing a wide selection of high quality, extensively screened frozen donor sperm and eggs. And they come from all races, ethnicities, and phenotypes for both home insemination as well as fertility treatment. Cryos International is the world's largest sperm bank and the first freestanding independent egg bank in the United States. And we thank them as well for their support. Today, we're talking about things to consider uh, before you begin uh, to think about fertility treatment, an important topic that we often don't provide a lot of information on. So we are very thankful today to be talking with Nancy Harrington. She is an infertility nurse and has been practicing, has been doing, has been an infertility nurse for many years. And she is also the Senior Specialist of Clinical Education at Alliance Rx Walgreens Prime. So, Nancy, we have been talking about infertility, but I think that something a lot of people don't consider as infertility, but in fact is, is repetitive miscarriages uh, or recurrent pregnancy loss. So that's a, it's a different people, these people can get pregnant, but they can't stay pregnant. Mm -hmm. So 
where mm-hmm. should but, but the truth is often so they're seeing an obstetrician at this point usually but where should they seek specialized help or where should they seek help along the board if their problem is repeated miscarriage rather than the inability to get pregnant in the first place Sure. Um, Repeated miscarriage or recurrent pregnancy loss is defined as a woman who has two or more clinical pregnancy losses kind of before the 20th week of pregnancy. And it's definitely a concern for patients. And so, again, going back to the reproductive endocrinologist or the fertility specialist, part of their training is, you know, related to recurrent pregnancy loss. You know, a lot of recurrent pregnancy loss is unexplained. And so these physicians really are um, trained to look at different types of things related to miscarriage, such as, you know, what are the hormone profiles of a woman? What are genetic issues that might be, you know, uh, part of uh, this woman's makeup or genetic makeup or carrier type? You know, are there any anatomical issues requiring maybe some surgical intervention? Um, What are her lifestyle choices? You know, is there heavy smoking? Is there alcohol use? Those things really are part of a reproductive endocrinologist evaluation and training when it comes to women. And so it is part of the um, patient population that you would see in a fertility uh, specialist office. You know, it's not necessarily anyone, you know, sitting in the waiting room having the same problem. You know, there's patients in the waiting room that may have cancer and are referred to a fertility specialist to cryopreserve, you know, possible eggs or embryos. You know, there's patients in there, again, that have had several miscarriages that are in there to consult about how that can be eliminated. And so, again, um, you know, that's where uh, folks should probably make a visit to rather than just staying uh, put and seeing if it happens again, per se, because there are interventions that can definitely, um, you know, show women. And, you know, ASRM has some outlines and some guides about, you know, the fact that you can have a baby 60 to 80% of the time, even after having three miscarriages. And Mm so patients should just make sure that they're knowledgeable that, hey, I'm still going to continue this journey, but I want to be with someone that has a specialty in helping me with this problem. Yeah. And and I'm glad you gave this statistic because the odds are actually in your favor, again, depending on Mm -hmm. your age. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Right. And I know I, I, I went off on this at the very beginning, but I think it is so important. I want to come back uh, just to make certain that we talk a bit about male infertility uh, and the importance of a semen analysis, you know, you know, the old saying, you know, my mother always said, takes two to tango. It takes two to get right. pregnant. And, uh, and so the, and, and what percentage of the cases of infertility are male related? Well, you know, the percentages that are male related can be almost the same as a female, you know, 30 to 40% of infertile couples may have a male factor. And again, um, as women, sometimes we say, oh, it's just a simple test. Well, you know, maybe a lot of the times it isn't a simple test for, for a gentleman yeah. to, you know, go through that. But again, it's the cornerstone of fertility evaluation for all male patients. And, you know, I know back in when I was in my clinic, I would have gentlemen that would present to me and say, oh, I had a semen analysis done five years ago and it was normal. I don't need to have it repeated. 
Well, no, you know, sperm changes. And so, you know, in our clinic, we would look at semen analysis every six months to a year, depending on the protocol and depending on what the patient was going through. So it's important uh, to find out if there is normal sperm, they look at how many sperm there are, you know, how are the sperm swimming? How are they shaped? You know, are there any kind of infectious cells inside the sperm? So it's really, you know, something that gives a wealth of information about the male. And if there is a problem with the sperm analysis, you know, most often, especially in a fertility specialist office, they will refer the gentleman to a specialty urologist or someone with specialty training in male infertility. Um, and so again, it's important uh, to note that there is sperm, that it looks healthy, and that there's adequate numbers you know, if someone's going to continue to, as you said, do timed intercourse without any kind of an intervention. But there are so many interventions that we can do now with male factor related to, you know, kind of IVF and advanced technologies. That's only a very small population of patients that need it. But again, um, you know, it's important to have it done and to, you know, make sure you get any kind of follow-up that needs to be done if there's any abnormalities. So, Will insurance cover infertility treatment? Um, it all depends, basically, you know, and unfortunately, I've been doing this for a very long time. <laughs> Things have started to really vamp up in the last year or two, but it all really kind of depends on where you live and where you work. Yeah. And so, you know, there are, you know, currently 17 states that have some kind of fertility, you know, offerings or mandates. Um, and what's really a good sign is that there's now seven states that have prepared legislature related to, you know, fertility preservation related to any kind of disease or cancer. And so, you know, again, it's an uphill battle, um, you know, trying to find out if you have coverage. I would just tell you to just question, 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 mm -hmm. get things in writing. Um, I have a, a friend that had fertility treatment right here in the state of Massachusetts um, under a Massachusetts provider, but was living in a nearby state and was somewhat told in that state, oh, you don't have fertility coverage because it wasn't a mandated state. So, you know, research it and look, you know, there are some employers right now, lots of employers, you yes. know, within the United States that are developing benefit protocols and benefit models for fertility coverage because yes. they feel that that is most definitely a big draw for employees. You know, patients that may need treatment, um, you know, will pick an employer that has a solid fertility benefit. You know, or patients. will stay so, at an employer. Uh, right. It's a good, right. it's, it's, it's really good for uh, employee retention. And I'm glad you mentioned, I mean, we certainly know that there are, um, I think you said 17 states mm -hmm. that require that employers of a certain size provide infertility benefits if they're going to do business in the state. However, what people don't realize is that you can advocate with your company to provide mm -hmm. infertility benefits. It is a great benefit package. As you mentioned, it's good for, for, for new hires. It's good for retention. It is a smart business practice if you're if companies are trying to hire uh, people in their uh, 30s and uh, 20s, 30s, and, and, and 40s. So it's smart. And, and let me send people to theresolve.org 
uh, website. They have some great resources for helping you advocate with your company, even suggesting there's there's information about, you know, that it makes good economic sense. There's They help you provide the argument to your company for why they should provide these benefits. So uh, let, me, let me send you there and say, please don't give up just because you don't live in a mandated state. Uh, that does not mean that you don't, you can't uh, take and do it even now and that you're thinking about treatment. This is the perfect time to start advocating with your company uh, before, before you need treatment. So yeah. So the perfect time I interrupted you. Sorry about that, but I always feel so. Oh, no, 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 it. no, yeah. that's, that's no excellent you know i've I've worked with resolve and over the years on different projects and one thing they do have like you mentioned is good resources they have toolkits per se you know in place that you can link to on the website that kind of help you as a self-advocate going to your hr person or going to someone at your employment that you can talk with about this and again it's an uphill struggle um and you know i think a lot of us find this a lot of the times with insurance and managed care, um, you know, sometimes to find out what's covered, what isn't covered, it's exasperating sometimes. But again, just stick with it and just, you know, ask questions and get answers. And again, um, it, like you said, it doesn't necessarily mean just because you're in a mandated state, you would be covered. But it doesn't necessarily mean that if you're not in a mandated state that you wouldn't be. So, again, I had to educate myself about this in one of my positions that I worked at in the past and learned a lot about, you know, it's not just where you are, it's where you work and it's, and it's kind of complex. But again, there's lots of resources out there that can hopefully help a patient get through the, you know, the maze of it. And your the the benefit provider at your infertility clinic is a great source of information as well. Um, so, and you don't even have to. Oftentimes, you can just do that a, a phone call as opposed to going sure. in and scheduling an appointment there. So, yeah, something really important to uh, to talk about. All right, let's move to talking about medications. Uh, we know that uh, IVF, well, not just IVF, but there are oral medications and things as well. So what type of medications are used to treat infertility? Sure. Um, you know, medications, infertility medications per se, uh, most of us don't realize it, but the majority of medications that are taken to treat infertility issues are pills and by mouth. Mm -hmm. You know, only a small percentage of patients will advance to IVF and those types of things. And so, um, you know, most of your PO medications or by mouth medications are, you know, dispensed by a regular pharmacy. You go in, you get the medications, you're given instructions on when to take them around your menstrual cycle. Uh, but a lot of medications that are involved with fertility and advanced technologies are injections. And the reason they're injections is because most often they're hormones. And um, unfortunately, we still cannot take, um, you know, the drugs associated with fertility, um, you know, by mouth. We have to do subcutaneous, which means kind of the smaller allergy kind of insulin type needle injections. Once in a great while, there would be another type of injection, but it's not very frequent. And so, again, um, the majority of these medications are used to either number one, correct an ovulation problem. So every month you're not making adequate hormones. So your brain somewhat shuts down and doesn't work properly. 
to signal your ovaries. And so by giving these medications, whether it be by mouth or injection, you're just helping the body along to kind of somewhat supplement those hormones. That's kind of the first line of use for fertility medicines. The second line of use that fertility medicines evolved to was their use with, you know, advanced technology such as IVF. Uh, in that you want to make multiple eggs. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, you're not only just correcting to make one egg, you're giving additional um, medications and hormones to make and harvest um, additional eggs so that the procedures have a little bit of a higher pregnancy rate. And so, again, um, these types of injectable drugs are supplied um, most often through the country through specialty pharmacies. Mm-hmm. Specialty pharmacies take care of patients with all kinds of chronic and advanced diseases such as oncology, MS, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, and fertility falls into that basket. And mm-hmm. so at a specialty pharmacy, you will get a lot of resources along with these medications. You know, there are folks that help you, you know, learn how to store the medications, learn how to mix the medications, and learn how to inject the medications. And so, um, you know, the model for specialty pharmacy is, you know, evolved tremendously over the last 15 years in that, you know, patients do have a solid resource, um, such as Alliance RX, Walgreens Prime, which is a specialty pharmacy, to have that resource because it's, there's nothing more intimidating than getting a box of medications and thinking, okay, what do I now do with Now what? This? Exactly. How do, yeah. no, now what? Now what? And um, it's and scary. So yeah, it's absolutely right, scary. scary. And that's why yeah. we encourage people to, well, first of all, you may have to, these medications are often not available at regular pharmacies, but the other reason right. is you want to go to a pharmacy that that's what they do. So when you have a question of, uh, do, do I have to put this in the refrigerator? They can say, oh yeah, that's the one mm-hmm. you put in, but this other one you don't. And they can just walk you through it, which is, you know, it's a godsend. Mm-hmm. It really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like I said, it's a nice resource for patients. Um, it's one less thing for them to worry about. There is a very, you know, close relationship and close communication between a fertility provider and a specialty pharmacy. And, you know, they get to know each other very well. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, they work very cohesively together. And so that ultimately the patient benefits, you know, from that collaboration. And Um, something to else keep in mind is that timing is important. You need your medication when you need it, because this is all a time at some point, uh, it becomes a, a, a very closely timed uh, medical treatment. And you need someone, a, a pharmacist, who understands the importance of, okay, I've got to have this now. <laughs> this is not a, oh, mm-hmm. come in next week and we'll get it in. No, that's not how it works. Yeah, it needs to be right, done. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So that's so. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Nancy Harrington, uh, for talking with us. If, if listeners want to get more information, where should about you or uh, about uh, Alliance RX Walgreens Prime or about infertility or about things to consider at the beginning of the infertility treatment. I know you guys have a fair amount of resources too, because you're kind of in the business of helping people at this stage. So where should people go if they want more information? Um, they can go to Alliance RX, uh, it's AllianceRXWP.com. We have a wonderful patient care booklet called Understanding Infertility. It contains a, very a lot of the booklet. information. Yes. That, yeah, mm-hmm. it contains a lot of what we discussed today. It doesn't just talk about, you know, medications. It talks about lifestyle and diet, nutrition and stress and those types of things. They can also go to walgreens.com slash fertility. 
you know, uh, Walgreens uh, uh, worked quite closely with Alliance Rx Walgreens Prime in that they've established, I think, close to 11 fertility specialty pharmacies throughout the country so that um, there's adequate resources for patients, you know, geographically and regionally. And they can also email me. My, I am nancy.harrington at alliancerxwp.com with any kind of questions, and I'd be happy to help folks and lead them to any resources that might be helpful on their journey. So thank you again for having me, and um, good luck to everyone that's out there that's on this journey. Thank you so much for helping to demystify the beginning steps. I really do appreciate it. And to our audience, everyone, take care, stay healthy, wash your hands, and uh, we'll catch you next week.